Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. As you're well aware here on the Coffeehouse, we try our best to guide you, our dear listeners, through pieces of great classical music to develop a deeper understanding and hopefully appreciation of them. And we hope that along the way you've picked up some common things that Allison and I look for in a piece and maybe gone on to do a bit of musical analysis yourself or at least maybe some critical listening. Ooh, and so that brings us to our topic today. What is critical listening? So it's essentially a deep self-study of a piece of music where you're listening with intention and perhaps learning something about the piece. And while we apply this technique to classical music here on the coffee house, it's not just limited to the great symphonies or the complete piano sonatas. You know, luckily this skill can be applied to literally any music you encounter in your life. So, how do you listen critically? First off, I want to get something out of the way. There is no right or wrong way to listen to music. I think that this topic can be very gatekeepy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But anyone can do it. Yeah, well, it could come across really as if you're not critically listening or listening in this way, then you're not really enjoying or understanding the music. And that's the opposite of the feeling that we want to create. Exactly. Music itself is meant to be enjoyed. And as we'll get into just right here, there are many ways to do that, to enjoy and to listen. And you can fluctuate on how much you are listening per se. So let's get into what what does this even mean? Yeah, so to begin with, Aaron Copeland wrote a book called What to Listen for in Music in 1939. It's a great read. If you have a chance to read the whole thing, I highly recommend it. Very good. In a chapter titled How We Listen, he posited that there are three, quote, planes of listening. The first is the sensuous plane, essentially just taking in the sensation the music makes you feel, or perhaps bass level listening, although I feel like bass level might be a bit reductive. But he likens this plane of listening to being in a room, reading, and suddenly the piano starts playing. Immediately, there's a tone shift in the space, but it's still just in the background. This is the most passive form of listening. Allison, what is a time in your daily life that you listen on a sensuous level? Um, definitely at work, where we're all doing our own thing and we just have some music on in the background. We don't even always know which music is on in the background because sometimes the station that the computer selects is random, but just it's noise there that's different than our own noise, essentially. It's, uh, and and for me, I think the background music is the perfect example when I'm driving, for example, and not listening to podcasts, but listening to music. I'm not 
thinking any deeper because I'm focusing on the road, right? <laughs> it's a, it's something else that's there. It's creating an atmosphere. I am enjoying the music, but am I really thinking about it deeply? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Or at least you, you shouldn't be, as you should focus on your safe driving. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next deeper plane is the expressive plane. That means what is the music trying to convey or express to us? So here, Copeland brings up the point that some composers swear up and down that their music means nothing. It's just music for music's sake. You've heard us talk about this before. However, Copeland posits that yes, all music does have a meaning. You just can't always put that meaning into words or into a story. So this plane is a bit deeper because you're really getting into how the music actually affects you. It's no longer just in the background. You're now more closely interacting with it. Do you listen expressively every day? You know, I think it honestly depends on the piece of music. If I've just found a new piece that really intrigues me, I am going to listen to that music on repeat and it's going to get into me essentially and I'm going to be you know really thinking about that music and it's like I'm I want to listen to that piece I'm going to request that my software or whatever plays it multiple times so I feel like that is much more on the forefront of my being than my thoughts rather than just in the background yeah yeah I'm, I'm with you there I think that's the most common way that I listen expressively expressively to a piece i think that there's also sort of a blurring of this when it comes to some i'm i'm a big uh player of of video games i think there's a sort of a a, a part of this when it comes to the best video game soundtracks because some of them are they're really trying to convey meaning and you can really when you listen to them outside of that game you're automatically drawn back in and you're mm -hmm. thinking about you know what it's meaning what it's conveying the the battle or the scene and 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 movie soundtracks do that too right you're thinking mm -hmm. immediately of of the meaning of that piece yeah and i guess similarly when i have a playlist and i'm like out running or something like that you know, I pick a playlist that's maybe going to hype me up. So it's like a, a specific type of music that's going to make me feel like, ooh, I'm powerful out here. I'm running. You know, it's it's changing my mood, essentially. So then finally, in Copeland's work, there is the sheerly musical plane. Copeland explains that the musical plane is usually not accounted for by a general listener, but perhaps is over accounted for by a musician playing a piece. The musical plane, as he describes it, is simply the notes, the rhythms, the harmonies, the technical aspects of the piece that maybe we talk about quite a lot on the coffee house while we're analyzing. Mm -hmm. However, Copeland doesn't, offer, doesn't really like his own analogy of these planes. He says that they're not separate. They're all there together, and it's just a matter of what we choose to focus on. So it's not a problem to be more obsessed with the sensuous plane and just subconsciously comprehend the rhythms, just as it's okay to count out the rhythms and not think about the emotions just then. The music gets into your auditory processing system regardless. So that was kind of a broad scope. And now you are ready to sit down and put this into action. 
But what do you do? How do you focus more on these perhaps deeper planes rather than just the sensuous plane? Well, there are a lot of answers online that give you ideas to try. Again, though, there is no right or wrong way. So we're going to share some of our experiences and some things that we found uh, to hopefully give you ideas to start your own critical listening journey. First, you could start by just identifying what instruments are playing. This in itself may take a few playthroughs for a dense, heavily orchestrated piece, for example. But in any hypothetical piece, perhaps the first time you miss the percussion playing a triangle on the downbeats, or maybe you didn't catch the doubling of a violin solo in the clarinet. Something I tend to do when I listen to a song over and over, which as I mentioned, sometimes I do get a bit obsessed with repeats, um, is to try to focus on one single instrument the entire way through. I'm essentially trying to learn what that part is, what that exact musician would be playing. So example, I might hear a clarinet solo at the beginning of a piece and then try and follow that same clarinet sound all throughout the rest of the piece as well. Just hook my ear onto it. And this type of listening may help you identify how the instruments are interacting with each other. So maybe you will hear a little bit of the melody that's actually passed back and forth between some sections. Or maybe you hear that bass drum hit right on the beat when the brass section comes in and it highlights that entrance. After you find the instruments, you can try something like we do here on the coffee house often by identifying the form. Do you hear the same melody repeated again and again? Is there a bridge section, for example? Can you hear development? Can you hear recapitulations? Can you hear the way that these are, uh, that these melodies are morphed and changed in something like a, a classical fugue? Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to point out that you don't have to know all the forms that are possible out there. It's, you know, you, it's not a quiz. You're not going to be asked by somebody, was this sonata in ABA form or was it in sonata form? <laughs> um, it, it doesn't really matter. It, what matters is if you're wanting to learn about it, you can, again, identify like, oh, I heard that melody at the beginning of the piece. And, oh, that's, you know, maybe I've heard this little snippet of melody and now I hear it slightly differently. So by form, we mean just identifying similar aspects or unsimilar aspects. If you do care to know the form, though, of course, there are many resources out there that will have a list of all sorts of different musical forms. And if you so choose, of course, you can put all of your pieces of music into different categories. Following little melodies and motifs like this through a piece is one of my favorite ways to listen critically, because I love to hear the ways that they are transformed and just like pop up and we'll talk a little bit more when we talk about this when we talk about expressive pieces but especially when that piece is trying to tell a story through the music when you start to hear those little bits of you know someone's motif some character's motif cropping up in a different instrument you can really start to think about what does that what does that mean for the character Mm -hmm. Right. And for the scene that it's trying to convey. I think a really prime example in my life that I can think of is 
the Mahler symphonies. He has a lot of motifs that carry through to different symphonies. It's not even just within one piece. The Mahler cinematic universe. Yes. <laughs> He's basically writing soundtrack music, essentially. Yeah. Um, but it always makes me so happy when I'm listening to one Mahler symphony and I hear a little motif and it's like, oh, that's from the fourth symphony or even whatever it might be. It just It's so delightful to find these little snippets. And a lot of times it goes deeper than that. It's not just from the fourth symphony. It's from this character portrayed in the fourth symphony at this emotional point. And now mm -hmm. that's being brought back in in a completely different piece of music because mm -hmm. he's he's so self-referential. So that's I mean, that's just we spent a lot of time on that. I apologize, but <laughs> and kind of got ahead of ourselves into the expressive plane. But that's a very that's a very fun thing to do for me. Exactly. I guess another little plug for Mahler as well. If we've yes. not made it abundantly clear that we like Mahler. <laughs> we we do like Mahler, which is unfortunate for this podcast, because if we were going to try to express our love of Mahler in a more traditional coffeehouse way, we'd have three hour long episodes. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe, Maybe one, one day. day. <laughs> but anyway, moving right along here. Now, of course, another huge aspect of any piece of music is the melody and rhythm. And this seems obvious, of course it's there, but it's always fun to sometimes take time to listen to how that melody really interacts with that underlying beat. So is there syncopation? What is the time signature? Does the tempo fluctuate? Does it speed up or slow down? And then how does that make you feel? So again, those planes can kind of interact a little bit. You hear the technical aspect of it, but maybe it affects you on an emotional level too. And then, what is the timbre of the music? This one's more tricky to describe and maybe subjective to some people. A timbre can also be described as color. How can the music have a color, you ask? Well, try to think of it like the opening to Disney's Fantasia with an orchestrated version of Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. There's an animation and lighting to highlight each part of the orchestra. For example, when the violins play quick high notes there's golden slivers of light, and the violins could be described as having a bright timbre. And then later, the basses walk down to their lowest note, and there's a dark green form that kind of fills the screen and seems to burrow underground. So this timbre could be dark yet cold. And again, this kind of thing is pretty subjective, but it may help to think of how would you draw something to fit the given sound. So a lot of these recommendations that we've just said really do focus more on Copeland's deepest plane, which is the purely musical. Getting into the expressive plane could be very easy if the piece is clearly programmatic in our Mahler example or for movie soundtracks, something like that, or has lyrics that make sense. But <laughs> not all music is as straightforward as something like that. And it also doesn't exist in a void. When you listen to music, you're inherently trying to make sense of it, and therefore relating it to all of your past experiences. How it makes you feel, or the message you understand from it, may be completely different from anybody else, and that is okay. This is also where your musical taste comes in, because certain styles and sounds may speak to your lived experiences more than others, and hence you might gravitate towards them more. But let's say you wanted to expand your music horizons with some new genres. Good for you. 
Now, all of these same critical listening principles can help you get into a song and figure out what you may like or hate about it. So maybe you listen to New Orleans jazz for the first time. At first, it may sound busy. There's a lot of instruments playing at once. Kind of overwhelming. Seems, yeah, it seems <laughs> like they're just kind of doing their own thing. <laughs> and I guess also for context of this little scenario here, go watch a little scene from the movie La La Land where um, Ryan Gosling is trying to explain to Emma Stone why he likes jazz so much. <laughs> um, but we'll kind of summarize that here. So let's say you're listening to this jazz and first you decide, you know, let's just focus in on something. I'm going to focus on the bass. And oh boy, that's a cool bass line that you hear. And now you hear that the trumpet's actually kind of playing off that line. You see how they interact. And then you hear the trombone actually coming in, mimicking what you just heard in the trumpet. So suddenly it's all starting to make sense. It all fits together and it's almost like a puzzle piece and your brain is putting it all together. And you're thinking, yeah, that's really cool. I see what they did there. And I want to hear more like it so I can experience this feeling of exploration into the piece again. And suddenly you find you're well-versed in this new genre that you found. Jazz is a great example of that. Um, one thing that I would highly recommend if you're, if you're looking to get into jazz or finding it difficult to understand or appreciate some... I would say more esoteric <laughs> jazz. There's There are tons of YouTube channels that do transcription videos of things like their solos. Mm -hmm. I love watching those because it really makes me appreciate, understand and appreciate the rhythmic variations in those solos and you know, seeing the lines that are repeated but tweaked and come back. It's, it's very cool. Um, if someone wanted to search up one of those videos, what are the keywords you'd recommend? Yeah, I, I recommending a specific channel, um, George Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. Really comes good. Up. Yes. <laughs> very, very, very good and often humorous. Yes, we will link his channel in our description of this episode. Yes. Another thing that can bring a lot of understanding to music is knowing the context in which a certain piece is written. Of course, here on The Coffee House, we try to give bios of our composers to set the scene for the music we're talking about. And while you don't have to go and learn every little thing about any artist and piece you come across, it does help set up some additional understanding for a piece of music. As an example, like just about everyone, I had a Beatles phase in high school. And of course, you can listen to the Beatles just for fun. You can enjoy their melodies and lyrics, but... Knowing about each of their eras and what their album concepts are can help you parse out why some pieces are love songs and others are colorful, odd parties under the sea. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, I think the Beatles are... I, I just kind of threw this as an example into this script here, but, you know, they have a huge discography, very similar to a lot of classical musicians in that way. Lots of different kind of genres and concepts that they're playing along with and understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it. You know, some of these weird pieces kind of come out of left field, but if you understand why, it's like, oh, you know, this makes sense. I see like the tone they were going for here. Mm -hmm. I understand why they like set a lyric this way or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so again, applying critical listening 
to any genre. Here's a rock band, and you can still listen critically to it. Before we conclude here, I want to make one quick note about about audio gear and what to listen on. This is something that can also have have it be very dangerous and (laughs) gatekeepy, because a lot of people have a lot of strong opinions on audio gear. I will Mm -hmm. say that it doesn't matter what you listen on as long as you can appreciate the music. However, there is a point at which on a technical level, some detail in music can be obscured by poor hardware because, you know, frequency response of headphones or whatever just does not do justice to things like uh, mids, for example, a lot of times mids can really be ducked out on cheap headphones. Because mm-hmm. they're all about that bass. <laughs> well, sometimes they're all about the bass, but they're also all about the highs and yes. things like you know cymbals and sibilance can really drown out a lot of cool uh, musical interaction. So I, I do highly recommend a decent pair of headphones or a decent set of speakers. Whatever, whatever sounds best to you, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of audiophile nonsense out there, I will say. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is, is that once you start to get into that whole technical scene, a lot of, you know, the different headphones that you buy or a different amp or different speakers can lend a quality to the music all on its own and suddenly you've got another aspect of it where you can combine the 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 experience of what you're listening on to what you're listening to and lend an entirely different level you know maybe you plug in a set of headphones that emphasizes the bass and it gives a a Mahler piece a completely different a uh, completely different feel my favorite headphones just to throw this out there are pair dynamic <laughs> DT990s, which I use. Ooh. And I love them because they have an incredibly wide sound stage. They're open backs, incredibly wide sound stage. And that in particular gives a classical piece a really orchestral feel. When I'm listening in a cl- in a quiet room, it feels like I'm in a concert hall, and that augments my listening experience. It's what I like. There's nothing like a live stage where you can really hear everything. So there really isn't. You're trying to emulate the mo- the closest thing to it, essentially. Yeah, but you know, you don't have to. Maybe you like a little bit more. You, you know, they make this exact headphone with closed back, which is a little bit more bassy and and tighter on your ears. So it's it's all personal preference when you get into that sphere. But I would highly suggest, you know. Finding something a little bit better than the $5 earbuds that you can buy at Target. <laughs> than the free headset that you can get on the Delta airline flight. <laughs> exactly. Those are not particularly good for critical listening. Just something that's a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, kind to all the different frequencies in, in <laughs> But again, music. if that's all you have, you use, use what you have. I think exactly. a lot of headphones nowadays, the, just... By Moore's law, the technology has kind of caught up with itself in that it's all now available in most places. Absolutely. Like a a decent quality, essentially. 
So absolutely. And if and if something says four audio files on it, it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and mismarketed. Oh, no. The oxymoron. Exactly. Now, Asa, can can you speak very briefly, perhaps, on like the concept of files of audios being lost, or lossy I guess data or, within or the files? Yeah. 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 Um. So a lossy or lossless audio file refers to audio file, not audio file. Um, <laughs> F-I-L-E. Refers the data that's on your computer. Exactly. And that, the loss of a file re- refers to how that data is compressed to be able to make a digital file fit into a, a, a reasonable amount of storage space. It's compressed and some data is lost. MP3s, for example, is a is a lossy format. Um, it generally is a lossy format, um, and with the with perfect, super accurate headphones and a, a great high end amplifier, you know, you may be able to to tell the difference between a loss a lossy audio piece, a lossy MP3 and a lossless flack, for example. But for the purposes of critical listening, you know, listening like this, enjoying music, you don't need to go out of your way to find lossless audio. You don't need a, a title subscription or, you know, download things from sketchy websites that are all flack <laughs> or something like that. You, you can enjoy, I, in my experience... You can enjoy all aspects of typically, you know, we talk about classical music, right? So mm-hmm. all aspects of any classical music that I've listened to are audible and enjoyable from Spotify, my MP3 library, CDs, stuff like that. So the lossiness is negligible for the most part. Yeah, I would definitely say for, you know, for the purposes of critical listening, you know, if you're not trying to master a piece, right? If you're creating the music, you want lossless because you got to hear everything if you're a recording engineer. But if you're not, you're trying to enjoy a piece. You don't need to pay a bunch of money to get the best equipment to get the best lossless audits. Because again, if you're not listening on high-end stuff that's going to be transparent, you're never going to hear the difference mm-hmm. between an MP3 and a flack of the same piece, for example. Perfect. Well, thank you for putting that myth to rest. I feel like there's a lot of discourse about that kind of thing, but about the audio files, the, the people themselves, <laughs> you know, the music snobs. The audio files and their audio files. <laughs> we don't want anyone to feel like they can't do this because of the music snobs. Be the music snob you want to see in the world, but be nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... With that, we hope we can send you out into the world and you can start listening critically. Again, remember, this doesn't just have to apply to things you like. You can expose yourself to new genres, maybe even a genre that you hate, and maybe get into why do you hate it? (laughs) Maybe that'll make you like it more and you can expand your horizons once again. And thank you very much for listening critically to our podcast for so long. It's uh, been wonderful to share this with you. And we hope that you've had fun. If you have... That sounds like we're closing the podcast down. We are not. We are not. Yes. (laughs) It's... Yes, we are not. That's a good point. 
Um, <laughs> if you have enjoyed, it's always useful to leave us reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever it is that fine podcasts are bought and sold. They're free. Be if someone makes you free. buy our podcast, it's not real. Yes. <laughs> and until next time, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Excerpts from Scheherazade were performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook at The Coffee House Classical Podcast and Instagram at Podcast Coffee House. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>